Please remain standing as I read our text for the day from John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Father, this passage tells us that the Holy Spirit will bring to our memory all the things that Jesus said. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our culture, yes, our world, is upside down, calling evil good and good evil. A song says, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other answer. Jesus is the way. Thank you, Lord, for the hope this gives to every one of us who knows Jesus Christ 
as our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. There's an old saying, it's not a biblical saying, but it's a common saying that bad news comes in waves of three. In our text, the disciples have heard bad news in a wave of three. In a matter of hours, they've been reminded that Jesus will go to the cross. He will leave them soon. It's troubling. Second, they've learned that Judas, the betrayer, was among them. One of them would betray Jesus, their master, the one in whom they serve. And third, they would learn that Peter, their vocal leader, would also deny Jesus three times very soon. Their hearts are troubled. Troubled hearts. If we were to ask one another, what's troubling you? What might you say? In your bulletin, you might have noted this little card, please pray. And one of the functions that we're going to do together and before our Lord's Supper time is it's going to be a time for you to, to write down troubles and how we can be praying one for another as a church family. And we'll ask that you place those in the connect boxes on the way out this morning. And, and what will happen is they'll be randomly assigned to another church member and they'll be mailed to them this week. You don't have to put your name on it. Uh, and, and it'll arrive at another church member's house who will be praying for you uh, and so if you receive one of these cards, everyone may not receive one, but if you do receive one of these cards, would you lift that person up faithfully to bear their troubles? For when Jesus identifies the troubles that his disciples have, he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled, and he moves them to attention onto himself. Jesus doesn't downplay their troubles. He doesn't tell them to suppress their troubles and bury it or get over it. He doesn't tell them, get over it, compartmentalize and move forward. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He's honest about their troubles, and yet in the struggle and in their troubles, He moves them to rejoicing. This chapter that Ralph, one of our elders, read for us, and and, and, in a matter of a conversation, Jesus knowingly looks at the troubles and he doesn't shame them for their troubles. He doesn't deny their troubles. He identifies clearly their troubles. And yet he tells them, take heart. He moves their eyes and their attention onto himself. And it leads with him being able to tell them with clarity, not in blind negligence of the reality of their trouble, but with a full awareness of their trouble, he's able to tell them, rejoice. That's who our God is. That's what we do this morning. We come and we bring our troubles before the Lord and we see the weighty troubles that the disciples had bearing on their souls. And like the disciples, we look to Jesus. And because of who He is, we are moved to faith. And in being moved to faith, looking to Jesus, we are moved to rejoice. So church family, let's begin as we look at the first 24 verses, reviewing those noting that Jesus' union with the Father, Jesus' unique union with the Father is so great and it's evidenced by His works and His words that He's done in His ministry that it merits our belief and loving allegiance. Young or old, exactly who Jesus is merits your belief. It earns your belief and faith and trust in the face of troubles. That He's worth our belief our public, confessing, loving allegiance in Jesus Christ. That's depicted through the waters of baptism, and it's depicted through a life of repentance and trusting in Christ through all of our troubles that drive us to the King. Our troubles drive us passionately to the King. So, Jesus' union with the Father, and I want to speak to that before we begin walking through these three components in which Jesus clearly is identifying His leaving, which is burdening them. But before ministering to them with truth, let's remind ourselves, as we've already seen several times, the nature of our triune God. One God eternally existing in three persons. Now, in speaking about the Trinity, our triune God, who's made Himself known in the Scriptures and in history, we can make the mistake of only thinking about the ways that they relate one to another. Three persons, fully God. And we see the Scriptures 
teach us that the Father is eternally unbegotten. And the Son is the eternally begotten One from the Father. There was never a time in which He was not. He has always been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Son would take on flesh and dwell among us. And that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has for eternity proceeded from the Father and from the Son. Eternal communion. The beauty of the Godhead. And the Father would send the Son who would come, the only begotten, and He would take on flesh and dwell among us. And that's who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man, the God-man. And Jesus identifies the troubled hearts of His disciples and He reminds them of His very nature. I am divine. Believe in Me. Believe in God. Believe in Me. So verses 1-7, through yes, Jesus has left. And for the disciples, we would say, yes, Jesus is leaving you. But take heart, for He alone could leave to prepare a place for us so that we will commune and have communion with God forever. Yes, Jesus has left, but take heart, for He alone could lead to repair a place for us so that we will have communion with God forever. Troubled, let not your hearts be troubled. This is the fourth time this verb is used. Troubled, troubled. It was used back in chapter 11, verse 33, upon seeing Mary weeping in the wake of Lazarus' death. He sees that she is troubled. In chapter 12, verse 27, and, or he was deeply moved and his spirit was greatly troubled. In chapter 12, verse 27, at his proclamation that his hour has come, John reminds us that he says, now my soul is troubled. And just a moment ago at the precipice of the betrayal by Judas, he recognizes that his heart is troubled. And so how could Jesus look at his disciples and say, let not your hearts be troubled? Jesus has already said he's been troubled. So is it wrong to be troubled? Is it sinful to be troubled? No. But Jesus is telling them, let not your hearts be continually in a state of trouble. Recognize your trouble and then do what? He tells them. He tells us, believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in Jesus. Recognize that God is so great and good and faithful that the troubles that come before us as His beloved are often what drive us most into His presence, seeking Him in prayer and worship. Let's be honest, as we think about our troubles, we are a reactive people. We have to be. We're ever reacting to our circumstances. Every one of us is one call away from the doctor, from our lives being flipped upside down. The week before us holds troubles or circumstances that will burden our conscience, our burden our hearts individually and collectively as a church who loves one another. We will be burdened one for another. And Jesus recognizes that His disciples understand accurately the troubles they face. Accurately. He just told it to them. Three troubles. He doesn't downplay it by saying, oh, it's not so bad. It'll be okay. Next week will be better. He doesn't say that. He identifies, he taught them clearly, yes, there are troubles, but take heart because you know me who knows fully. We know our circumstances often accurately, but listen, believer, we never know them fully. We never know them in completion. So where does the peace and the joy come for the believer? It comes in that we know the one who knows us completely. We know the one who does know our circumstances completely and fully, and in him we have life. And in His Word we have life. That's what First John, or John 1.4 told us already. In Him we have life. That's good news. Not that we understand things fully, but that we know the One who knows them fully. And He knows us fully. Which means He knows truly when our hearts are troubled. Even when the person sitting beside you or you rode here with, or even if you don't really know another person in the room, the Lord knows your troubles. And the comfort for the believer, the take heart believer, let not your hearts be troubled, comes because we know the One who knows all of our troubles and calls us to believe in Him. Oh yes, we know 
Matter of fact, we could take the rest of today and tomorrow to have each one of us walk up here and share how the Lord has borne your troubles, sustaining you. Each of us could speak in that way. The Christian life is not a life free of troubles. As a matter of fact, it's a life that in a world that hates the Lord, as the coming chapters will make clear, it's a, it's a life that invites troubles. The world will hate you for they hate me, Jesus tells His disciples. It's a life of troubles, but it's a life of knowing the one who knows all troubles and the one in whom we look to by faith. That's the good news. That's what He steadies His disciples in while their hearts are troubled. Now, real estate in Israel and Jerusalem has always been prime. Jesus tells them, I'm going to leave and prepare a place for you. And that had to be comforting, certainly to an extent. Matter of fact, we've, have you heard that idea? A mansion in heaven awaiting us? The disciples, their hearts are troubled, and Jesus tells them, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. There was a song, I'm not that old, but I remember a song my dad would always play. We'd go fishing. This is not relevant to any of you. Bennett Springs, I would love to go fishing. We'd drive down early in the morning. We'd leave at 4 in the morning. We'd go down and, and uh, trout fish. And my dad would always play this old satellite radio station that would have these old songs, Elvis and all these other kind of old southern gospel songs and, and some George Jones and some quality stuff like that. And I remember there was a song that would play called Mansion Over the Hill that, that Elvis sang. This is so weird that I'm talking to you about like an Elvis song. <laughs> but I remembered it, and so in thinking about it, I, I looked up the lyrics exactly. I'll read them to you, and I will not sing them to you. But in this text in which his disciples have troubled hearts, Jesus does not comfort them by telling there's a place for them where they'll be. Jesus' comfort for them is that He will not have forgotten them and they will have communion with Him forever in the place that He is preparing for them. The comfort is not in the mansion or the place. The comfort is in the presence that they will be with Him forever because their anxiety is because Jesus is physically having to leave them. So their comfort isn't a sweet house. Their comfort is to be back in the presence of Jesus. That's what makes heaven, heaven for the believer. Now, let me read this in my best Elvis voice. He says, I'm satisfied to cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, that silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk on streets that are the purest gold. Though often tempted, tormented, and tested, and like the prophet, my pillow is stone. Though I find here no permanent dwelling, I know he'll give me a mansion of my own. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged because I'm heaven bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city. I want a mansion, a robe, and a crown. What Elvis missed in this song that he sang it's not the comfort is in the place. The comfort is to be back in the presence of Jesus. That's the comforting balm that Jesus gives to His troubled disciples. That's good news for us. Now, Thomas asks a question in verse 4. What if we get lost? Jesus, You know where You're going, but what if we don't know where You're going? I love this question. It's completely what I would ask. Jesus, we trust that you know exactly where we should be, but I, what if I don't have a good sense of directions and I get lost? Jesus, you're going to go prepare a place for us. That's great, but how do we get there? Have you had the feeling of being lost before? Have you literally been lost before driving? It's happened to me all the time. All the time. Back before MapQuest, when I was a young seminarian, we, Sarah and I were first married, and she had a dietetic internship. She'd be moved to all these different spots all over Kansas City. One time in the winter, we were driving up there. I had a 70-mile drive to, to my campus, and I would go pick her up at a different spot. And I printed off the MapQuest directions. And there was road work, and so they were no longer accurate. It began snowing and sleeting. And I could not find her. And we were in a part of, I was in a part of Kansas City that was not safe. But the good news was our car was so messed up that other people felt unsafe being around me. And my car, this old Saturn. It was dangerous. People would lock their windows if they saw me coming. 
But the feeling of it sleeting and me not having any idea where I was, but knowing I was not where I longed to be was a troublesome feeling. I remember pulling over and had no idea where I was. I pulled into a car dealership and I called Sarah. I said, I'm so sorry. And my heart wanted to be with her. It was terrible weather. It was a terrible car. And I had no idea how to get where I wanted to go. Thomas hears Jesus' words that he is going to prepare a place. And Thomas's anxiety is, but what if we don't know how to get there? And how does Jesus comfort Thomas? I am the way. The comfort for Thomas that Jesus gives him is that I am the way. Thomas, you know me. You know me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. These words are comforting to Thomas. Isn't it ironic that the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way, is one of the most offensive statements that can be made in our culture, but for the believer, for Thomas, in his moment of anxiety, it's among the most peace-giving, comforting realities. Yes, Jesus is the way. He is the hope. He is the life. It's not my ability to drive there or to get there. He has gone to prepare a place for me, and He will not forget me. I know Him. And therein I know the way. That's good news, isn't it, believer? Let's look secondly in verses 8-14 through that yes, Jesus has left, but take heart, for His grace is sufficient for you, for His power is made perfect in weakness. Now Philip echoes Thomas's problem, but in a more severe way, and Jesus responds in a more direct way. Philip, hearing that Jesus is sufficient for him, Philip seems to ask a question that's rather sincere. It's very sincere. Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that will be enough. Jesus, we trust You, but just show us the Father. And what Philip has done is he's done one of two errors. In his statement, he has either denied the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father, divine, for Jesus is enough for him. Or second, he has presumed that Jesus has not done all that the Father has commanded him to do. John has gone to painstaking clarity in this Gospel to show us that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did were perfectly accomplishing the will of the Father. It was fulfilling all the righteous demands of the Scriptures. Jesus is the sent agent of the Father, the only begotten. And that's Good news, the belief that God in Christ provides us with our sufficient needs for abundant and everlasting life is always bubbling up into the surface. Is Jesus enough for me? Our hearts are often always chasing seasons, aren't they? They're either chasing the season ahead of us that we long for, or they're chasing the season that we've already come for and behind. And we get stuck in nostalgia. Have you ever met someone like that? a longing for the good old days? What a sad and hopeless state to be in. You can't rewind time. And yet also the person that's never content because they're always longing for the future. What a sad state to be in for their life will pass them by. I think we all can relate to this in some measure. But the disciples are reminded that Jesus is enough. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5-10, through 10, Paul, likewise, after speaking of a number of remarkable things he saw and did by the Spirit, he says these words as Paul learns a similar lesson as a later apostle. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but... The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whatever the thorn of the flesh is that Paul asked the Lord three times, please take this away. I think we can fill in the blank. It dealt something with his weakness, insults from other people, hardships he faced, persecutions and calamities. And he's left declaring to the glory of God, Lord, you are sufficient for me in my trouble. My troubles are so great, they lead me to plead with you. Please take them away. And when the Lord says, no, He is left saying, you are enough for me. That's also how Jesus comforts His disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's how we minister to each other as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We come alongside each other and we hug each other and we encourage each other and we pray for each other. And in love, we serve one another. And in serving one another and loving each other, do you know who we're pointing each other to? Jesus. In our small groups, in our groups as we gather, and we help to bear each other's burdens. We don't just do that because we like each other or we're similar. We do that because we're marked by the love of Christ. And as we love each other and as we serve each other, what happens? We sense the love of Christ. Because it's the love of Christ that compels us, 2 Corinthians says. That's good news. That's what we're always reminding each other of believing, that Jesus really is enough. His grace is sufficient for us, even in weakness. Third, verses 15-26. through 26, Yes, Jesus has left. But take heart, for He and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit to indwell believers forever as we are raised to life to do what? To demonstrate the love of God to the world. Chapter 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit, He will begin to come front and center into the minds comforting the disciples. The disciples, the Holy Spirit, He had not yet been sent in full measure. The Holy Spirit, He comes and indwells believers upon faith in the Son. And this is good news. So Jesus comforts His troubled disciples. He says, yes, your hearts are troubled, but the Holy Spirit, He's coming. The Holy Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son is sent by the Father and the Son. And as believers today on this side of the cross, we receive the Holy Spirit upon regeneration and faith in Christ. In chapter 14, 15, and 16, all it in a nutshell, forward for us what we're going to see about the Holy Spirit. I, didn't give them, I thought about giving them to you in notes, but I thought your bulletin was going to become a little too bloated. Chapter 14, what we've seen here, we see of the Helper that the Holy Spirit is given a word here, a word that, quite honestly, if you've got a variety of translations, you'll see probably a different translation. He's called the Helper. He's called the Comforter. The encourager, the intercessor, the companion, the helping presence. In 1 John, the same title, the same Greek word is given to Jesus, and there refers to Jesus as our advocate. Jesus comforts the disciples to tell them bodily, I will leave you, but I will send my Spirit and He will indwell you. And this is good news for them. This is to comfort them. And what will He do? Specially, He will lead them to do even greater things. Greater things in what sense? Greater things in that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the disciples will be commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit, geographically, who indwells them, will go further, will cover more territory and more ground than Jesus did. Jesus in His ministry through them by the Spirit they will do greater things, testifying of Christ. Chapter 15, the Spirit testifies about Jesus. And this way, some scholars have called the Holy Spirit the shy person of the Trinity. I like that. The shy person of the Trinity. Why would they say that? 
It's because the Holy Spirit is always testifying of Jesus. He's always testifying of Christ. He's always bringing our minds to Christ. Every time our minds drift to the Spirit, we can't help but giving glory and testifying to Jesus. The Spirit-breathed Word testifies of Christ. And the Spirit, just as the Father sent the Son on a mission, the Father and the Son send the Spirit on a mission to testify of Christ. In chapter 15, we'll see that the Spirit plays a role, a key role and responsibility of converting sinners to salvation. Of helping us to walk out our salvation and, and bringing us to communion with the Lord. Chapter 16, we see that the Spirit is also the convictor. He's the helper and comforter, but the Holy Spirit is also the convictor who convicts us of sins. And this is a comforting word for the body of Christ. As we look at verse 19, the world will not see Jesus anymore. Look at verse 19 in your Bibles. Chapter 14, verse 19. We'll start in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Why will the world not see Jesus and the work of Jesus no more? Because the world, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, has fleshly eyes. Their minds only process the physical, the literal in this way. God is spirit. They cannot see God. So when Jesus tells them in this text that they will not see me anymore, it's because they won't see his body. What's going to happen to his body? What's Jesus doing again by comforting his disciples that he's going to leave them? He's telling them again, oh, that was true, but I told you, I am going to be out of here. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. But I am going to raise again. I will walk among you and teach among you. And 40 days later, he will ascend to heaven. And this word is a comforting word for the body of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Goes forth teaching and loving and serving. And the work of Christ goes into a world that cannot see Him and often verbally rejects Him, but they cannot deny the reality of the power of the testimony of life. The one who transforms and convicts and brings life. Every one of us who know Christ could give testimony to how the Holy Spirit, how God is changing our lives. He's brought us from faith and hope in Christ and life in Christ from death. This past week, I intended to go back to Missouri for my uncle's funeral. We didn't go, but I was able to send a, a letter on that was read at his service. My uncle did not know Christ for most of his life. He did not live a good life. He was a sinner in need of grace and salvation. He lived a very worldly and compromised life. There's not a good way to say it. But he came to Christ in 2016. He was diagnosed with bone cancer in 2012, but the cancer would advance in great ways after he professed faith in Christ and was baptized. The last four years of his life would be marked with unimaginable suffering, unbelievable pain. But he knew that pain as a believer in Christ. He knew a peace in suffering. Every day that he had as a believer were in pain management for bone cancer. A grown man would cry out to God, take my life, because the pain was so unimaginable. But he loved Jesus in his later days, a love that did not mark his life at all before he came to faith in Christ. Jesus comforts his disciples by telling the Spirit, I will send. And just as on the other side of the world in Missouri, from the time of his speaking to these disciples, the Holy Spirit is changing sinners into saints. He's made them into saints and they give a testimony of His faithfulness in a world of troubles. That's good news. That's good news. So it leads not only to peace, recognizing a troubled heart, but it leads to rejoicing. 
from troubles to rejoicing. Look at verses 27 through 31. We notice secondly today, rejoice, for just as Satan has no claim on God, Satan neither has claim on those who love and Christ. Just as Satan has no claim on God, so too he has no claim on your life, believer. The troubles of life are very real. But Satan has no claim on you. The chaos and disorder from the fall of Adam in Genesis 3 are compounding. Investors and mathematicians speak of the miracle of compounding interest. A miracle of investing and compounding interest. But sin, as it's impacted the world from Adam, is compounding. Think of all the relational suffering. The generational fracturing. The rebellious rejection of God's design in each other by people and even by angels who leave their own domain we see in Genesis. Sin and evil are compounding, but Jesus comforts His disciples that the evil one, Satan, has no claim on you, for he has no power over Jesus. What kind of peace does Jesus give to His disciples? Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Your hearts are troubled. Good news. Believe in me. Peace I leave with you. The very statement, peace I leave with you, is to say again, listen, your hearts are troubled, but I'm leaving. I know every one of us in stage of denial, you hear, we hear heavy news and our hearts are moved to what? No, don't do that. If you've moved to Nacogdoches, if you've come here in this county and you've moved here, I'm assuming when you left the place you were before, there was a heart or a moment that's by a loved one that said, don't leave, don't go. And Jesus told them He's leaving to prepare a place for them. And He doesn't change even though their hearts are troubled. Instead, He tells them, I give you peace. What kind of peace? Peace that does not look like the world's. How does the world give gifts? It gives it with a moving target. It gives it and it takes it away. Here it is. And here it moves. And the world recognizes that. Listen, one of the most common cultural sayings right now is be on the right side of history. That's not a political statement. That is a real confession by our culture. And listen, 30 years from now, it will probably be given about whatever the right side of history was. And 30 years from then, do you know what's going to happen? The statement will be given again about the culture that's 30 years from now. Because the world is ever shifting in its goalposts. And the believer and the disciple is not to long for the shifting peace of this world, but to long for the peace that comes from the Lord, the unchanging, faithful God of the universe, the eternal Son sent from the Father. He promises disciples, peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. And what does He tell them? The absence of fear. Let, neither let them be afraid. Neither let them be afraid. The peace that the Lord gives us is one that is ever steadying. Peace and a lack of fear in the face of verse 30. Look at verse 30. Right in the heart of it. Satan has already entered into Judas. Judas has left for the betrayal to, to finish the deed. Look what he tells him. I will no longer talk much with you. Why? For the ruler of this world, Satan, he is coming. He's going to come back and finish the deed of the betrayal. But what does Jesus say about Satan, the ruler of this world? He has no claim on me. And what have the believers been promised? Just as the Son has union with the Father, and they are hidden in Christ, and the Spirit will come and indwell them, they are hidden in Christ. And so what's the good news for you, body of Christ? You are hidden in Christ. And does the evil one have any claim on you? The answer is no. No. Just as the evil one has no claim on Jesus, beloved, he has no claim on you. You are not marked by your troubles. You are marked by the one who bore our troubles on his body on the cross. That's the good news. That's good news. 
That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul says in 1 Timothy, of whom I am the most. That's good news. That's the hope we proclaim to every person. Every person. No matter what you've done or been done to you. You have perfect peace and forgiveness of sins and hope and life in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Come to life. Come to light. For the light has come into the world. The sinless Lamb of God who takes away our sin. That's good news. That is medicine for a troubled heart. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. That's good news. Peace He leaves with us. His peace He gives us. Our next steps this morning is in a way one long next step. One day, all troubles will flee those who love God. One day, all troubles will flee those who love God. But the love of God will never flee us in our troubles. Believer, if your heart is troubled today, believe in God. Believe what He says is true. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. We either believe the truth or we can be deceived and believe a lie. The good news that we have is not a denial of troubles but the faithfulness of our Lord. That is good news. So, on your card before you, we have an opportunity to take a few minutes to write down how your church family can be lifting you up. And so there's a couple components to this. And if our many church family members who are at home right now, you can type this in to the screen. Not to the screen, but to the computer, however your system works. You can type that in or you can email us at elders at gracebiblechurch.com so we can be praying for you. But here together, I would like you to take a moment, if you would be willing, on this side to write out troubles and how we can be bearing with each other. This is also what Paul tells the church in Colossae. As they're experiencing troubles, bear one another's burdens, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgive you. The bearing of each other's troubles. Not on our backs, but taking it to Christ and ministering one to another in this way. So would you take time, just a few minutes, to consider writing out troubles. And when you leave, you'll see the Connect offering box. Just place those in there. And secondly, as you've done that, or if you would do that, you'll also notice, as we always do, the last Sunday of the month, we have a great team that assembles various prayer requests from our church family. And they assemble that into a prayer calendar that's noted that you can put this on your fridge, put it at your place of work, or somewhere where you'll see it regularly, that we can be praying in, in unison through these things, a different day of the week. And if you're kind of saying, you know what, I don't know of any troubles right now that are on my mind or my heart, would you take time as you skim through this, just for a minute or two, and as, if the Lord puts one on your heart, articulate that on that prayer card that a church member will be lifting you up in before we observe communion together. So... Let's, uh, let's share our troubles with the Lord as we pray and write them out on our cards together.
Father, You are faithful, ever faithful in all Your ways. Father, every trouble that is being written, every trouble that has come into our mind this week that has burdened our hearts, You know. You know them all fully and deeply, and You know the future. And Lord, we are stirred to peace this morning to know that we rest in Christ. Lord, as Philip asked and said it would be enough to see the Father, we are at peace because we believe in Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom You have sent to bear our burdens, our sins on His body on the cross. That when He said, it is finished, it was paid in full. We thank You, Lord, that we are hidden in Christ. And as believers, Spirit of God, we thank You for convicting us and bringing us to life and empowering us to love others and to forgive and to bear forth Your truth in suffering and in hardships and anxieties. We are moved to peace and joy because we are hidden in You. Lord, we pray for those unable to gather with us physically this morning. We ask, Lord, for those who are particularly lonely and hurting and burdened in this season that we love so dearly, God. You love them even more and You know them in their depths. God, would Your Spirit comfort them. Place them likewise on our minds that we may reach out to them, Lord, and stir them to reach out for the fellowship that is ours in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We love You and we thank You for the gift of communion that we get to experience together in Jesus' name. All God's people said together, Amen. When you came in this morning, you hopefully saw one of these little communion pods. I called them a Lunchable last time. I was told that's not correct verbiage. And so if you did not get one of these, we have some servers. If you're a believer, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're in good standing in the body. This is for us to partake of together. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder that our hearts need not be troubled. For we are hidden in Christ. It is by the shedding of His blood there is forgiveness of sins. The sinless Lamb of God. This is good news. By faith in the Son, we have life. And we partake rejoicing as a testimony and a proclamation that a day will come in which we will eat with Jesus bodily. And we will drink with Him. And we will spend eternity with Him in the place that He has prepared for us. And is preparing for us. And that we have an advocate in the Son with the Father. This is good news, church family. This is a feast. And so what I like to do is we will open, and as we've said before, there's a little film on the very top. And that is where the bread is hidden. And we'll read 1 Corinthians, partaking first of the bread, this gift that the body of Christ has partaken of, and is partaking of today all around the world, gathering their hearts stirred in faith as the Spirit builds us up as we're reminded of the peace we have in Christ. And so, Paul says to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church family, marked in our hearts as we think about this gospel. You think about the scene as this is unfolding. The disciples have clean feet as they partook of the Passover meal, of this new covenant in Christ's blood that we are participants in. They did so with clean feet. 
because Jesus had washed them. His work on the cross would wash their souls clean forever. Not because our sin is small, but because Christ is so great. We are partakers by faith in Christ, the giving of His life, that we may have life and communion with Him forever. That's good news, troubled hearts. That's good news. Paul continues, he says, In the same way also Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, we thank You for the gift that it is that You've given us a faith in which our tongues are able to taste. That Jesus, You came for eternity. That You, Son, would take on flesh, become a man, fully God, fully man. That You would suffer. You would be tempted in all ways that we are and yet be without sin. That we are beautiful and clean and washed pure because of what You did on the cross in obedience to the Father. And Father, we thank You for loving us and sending us out while we were yet sinners. Christ would die for us. Would You embolden us this week, Spirit of God, to show love to others, to be quick, to offer forgiveness, and to long and make it our greatest longing to see our little ones in this room and outside the room to come to know You as King. Our greatest longing for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors to come to know the peace that is uniquely offered by Jesus. We love You and we thank You that we're partakers of that peace and it's with joy we say together, Amen.